KYW Original Podcasts. This is KYW In-Depth. I'm Charlotte Reese. We keep hearing that this presidential election in November will be like no other. There's a pandemic, massive social movements and protests, and an economic crisis. But this isn't the first time people have gone to the polls during a crisis. Americans voted during the Civil War, both world wars, the Great Depression, and even recent events like Hurricane Sandy. New Jersey residents may remember how close that came to the 2012 election. So I reached out to Dr. Richard Dilworth, the head of Drexel University's Department of Politics, to ask about elections throughout history and what it's been like voting during a crisis. Did anything change with the election during a crisis of the past? How unprecedented is it to cancel an election? Uh, Extremely uh, unprecedented. I mean, it's one of the more amazing things that the the United States is the incredible consistency of uh, national elections. Certainly, they've changed in significant ways. They've changed in terms of how people vote, you know, from an actual ballot box to electronic voting. It's obviously changed in terms of who has the right to vote and the gradual expansion and, in some limited instances, contraction of the of the suffrage. But the one thing that's consistent is, first of all, the timing of the elections. Every two years for congressional and every four years for presidential. And, and, and it's at the state level, too. Uh, you know, there's slightly more variation across states Given that there, given that state constitutions have been easier to change, but uh, the consistency of state elections has also been remarkable, and then local elections. Um, you know, Philadelphia has had meaningful municipal elections since really the 1838 state constitution. So, so certainly the elections have changed, but the consistency of the elections and actually holding the elections has not changed, even through major crises. Right. Yeah. And I mean, do you think there's any similarities or differences between voting during these crises? Did voters react the same way during World War II than they did an election during a recession or even a natural disaster like Hurricane Sandy? Yeah. So one classic model by which you sort of talk about elections is electoral realignments. That is when you see a really substantial shift in the voting behavior of specific territories that is durable, that it's a really distinct shift that you typically see over one or two election cycles, but then it's a shift that that remains, as opposed to a temporary shift for typically some sort of idiosyncratic reason. Either there is a uniquely unpopular elected candidate who gets voted out or something like that. So, just to throw out one example from history, Philadelphia, from roughly immediately the period during the Civil War up until 1951, was an incredibly monolithically Republican city. In 1881, Philadelphians elected a Democrat, Samuel King, as mayor. That was a significant break from previous behavior and also a significant break from future behavior. That is, uh, Samuel King was elected mayor in 1881, and the next Democrat elected mayor was Joe Clark in 1951. So that's the sort of ephemeral moment that was basically a political protest on behalf of, of Republicans to vote for a Democrat at that point. 
as part of the sort of mugwumpery movement that actually elected uh, Grover Cleveland as well, but as president. So, I mean, that's a sort of ephemeral, uh, momentary sort of shift in electoral behavior. But a realignment is a is a moment of permanent shift in, in electoral behavior that I think is, is reflective of typically a more radical structural change in typically the economy or in the society. And the real moments of realignment are also coincide with really sort of dramatic changes that are pretty evident in the country, often timed close to something like a war or an economic crisis. So the major realignments that we typically talk about are the 1830s uh, creation of the Democratic Party. That, uh, I, I think, is far enough back in history that it, the causes of it, which are really a sort of populist movement um, to create full public participation parties, was, uh, I think, was based on fundamental changes in terms of population growth, in terms of the expansion of the country, in terms of early forms of industrialization. But then you have the real fundamental realignment of 18. 60, when you have the first Republican elected president. And, you know, uh, that's also pretty unique in the sense that one thing you don't want to have as a result of an election is a civil war, right? Elections are supposed to prevent civil wars. But of course, the 1860 election um, was one of the real sort of moments of igniting um, the sectional crisis that became the civil war. But that arguably was also a result of a substantial economic crisis in the 1850s from the, the crisis of 1857. The economic crisis of 1893 leads to a significant realignment of the Democratic Party strength uh, that's reflected in its, its the, the shift in the power of the Democrats moving farther westward. When they nominated William Jennings Bryan in 1896, that leads to a massive split in the Democratic Party. It almost destroys the Democratic Party, and it certainly cements the Democratic Party's status as a minority party. And then, of course, the Depression from the 1930s, led by the 1929 stock market crash, leads to the massive realignment towards the Democrats. That's probably the most clearest shift in party support in U.S. history. When you see the Democrats absolutely sweep the both Congress and the presidency, Franklin Roosevelt wins the vast majority of electoral college votes in 1932, even more in 1936. Really fundamental change in, in people's voting behavior, and that clearly was linked both to the economic depression and also the Republican response to the depression, which was generally considered inadequate. Then... I think generally you talk about a realignment that's sort of reflected in the late 60s, early 70s, especially the 1968-1972 congressional and presidential elections, where you see a shift back to the Republicans as a sort of, well, as part of the Republican Southern strategy, it's really a sort of Southern realignment towards the Republicans as the Republicans attempt to appease the South with the states' rights movement and a sort of message of law and order. And frankly, since then, you've seen massive stability in party support. But here, I think, to answer your question more specifically, except for wars that are fought domestically, the Civil War, you don't tend to see wars leading to dramatic changes in electoral support, at least not straightforward changes in electoral support. I think that there's an argument to be made that the Vietnam War ultimately leads to some sort of switch in party behavior, in the behavior of 
party activists and in party support, but it's not it's not direct in the way that something like the Depression led to an immediate and dramatic change in electoral behavior that was durable, that lasted over time. There's no real electoral realignment that you see as a result of something like the Spanish flu. And I would be surprised to see major changes to party support as a result of COVID. The depression, the, the current depression that we're in as a result of COVID, I could see as conceivably a bigger change, especially if we if it turns out that that really is a catalyst for creating larger structural changes in the in the economy, which it certainly could. I think that's going to be um, a major shift. And then the other thing that underlies this, of course, is generational turnover that, you know, I think in part you can explain relatively dramatic changes in party support as the sort of gradual accumulation of a new cohort of people entering the electorate as the older cohort gradually leaves because they die. And so because that's a relatively lumpy process, I think you'll see that ultimately create sort of moments of electoral party support shift that can be significant. But frequently that's a more gradual shift, and then especially economic shocks, I think, are the things that are really sort of become evident. What about candidates? How have candidates in the past reacted when all the public's attention isn't on them in the lead up to Election Day? Have they kind of changed their message to fit what's happening to appeal to voters? So I think that the most tried and true strategy for any individual candidate in a national election, I don't necessarily think this is true at the state or local level, but especially at the national level, is if you are not the incumbent, your strategy is to try to cast the current period as one that is bad. That is, your goal is to try to convince people that the overall state of things is not good and that we're headed in the wrong direction. Because that tends to be, more than any specific policy, voting behavior tends to shift, crucially based on people's perceptions of simply things being overall bad or things moving in a wrong direction which is, of course, the basis for that very typical polling question of, do you think that things are headed in the right direction or the wrong direction? So if you're the incumbent, obviously your your goal is to say that things are going really well and that we're on the right track and things are going in the right direction. And, you know, there are obvious things that either candidate will point to. But, I mean, you can, you can see these strategies playing out pretty clearly and that the Trump presidency has provided an excellent sort of foil for both Trump and for Biden to try and send those messages. So at an individual sort of campaign level, I think those are the sort of key strategies around which you then define more specific messages um, on specific policy areas for specific issues. Speaking of the 2020 election, it's been called a very polarizing one with two very different sides. And some voters are worried about the fairness in the system or even election fraud. What do you think states can learn from the past to prepare for this election? Within the most recent past, typically the Democratic strategy has been to try and turn out specific groups that support it. And the Republican strategy has been to try to suppress those votes. 
the Republican support tends to be more homogeneous, tends to be somewhat older, tends to has traditionally tended to be somewhat wealthier, and that's a population that that tends to vote more anyway. The Democratic strategy has been making voting easier for groups that don't necessarily have as high turnout. And that was the origins, for instance, of the Clinton-era motor voter bill that made voter registration much easier so that it was, you know, and specifically targeted groups that would most likely support Democrats, like including voter registration for things like part of signing up for welfare and stuff or getting a driver's license. And then, of course, the Republican strategy of attempting to require extra ID when you go to vote or, or any kind of ID when you go to vote or a driver's license is an attempt simply to suppress relatively low-income voters that would most likely vote for Democrats. Those strategies, to the extent that they suppress anyone from voting, are, I think, in, in a lot of respects, inherently unfair. It's also clearly been a relatively recent Republican strategy to make greater claims about electoral fraud. But of course, on the Democratic side, there's a different claim about electoral fraud. So this is pretty classic throughout history is making claims of electoral fraud. As far as I understand the history, I think we have a reasonable sense that electoral fraud, certainly there's been lots of electoral fraud. Um, And in anything like a national election where you have voting occurring in 3,000 plus counties throughout the United States and the multiple districts within those counties. So many things are going to be happening in each of those separate places that it's hard, it's going to be hard to uh, say anything specific. Of course, anyone who is looking strategically who would want to influence an election, and especially an election where the parties have effectively built coalitions that are very close to 50%, can simply target a few counties in a few states to swing a close election. And so if you really wanted to engage in electoral fraud to swing a national election, a presidential election, you'd only have to concentrate in a small select handful of counties. But of course, both parties know that and they know the specific county. So I mean, there there is a, a strong focus on that. So I guess there's the voter fraud issue. Certainly there's there's electoral fraud. I think a lot of evidence suggests that electoral fraud has a relatively limited impact. Traditionally, it's had a relatively limited impact because the places where you're most able to commit electoral fraud are the places where you're probably going to win anyway. Those are typically places where you control the election process because the other party has simply given up in that area. And that can help statewide. So If you control a county, um, if you're one party and you can control a county, and that means that you can um, falsely inflate the vote from that county in a statewide election, all of a sudden that county becomes much more important statewide, and your electoral fraud, its significance extends beyond that specific county. So that's important. Um, And, and of course, there there are classic historic examples of that. You know, uh, Richard Nixon complained endlessly that it was the Democratic Party under Richard M. Daley in Chicago that swung Illinois' votes for Kennedy and won Kennedy the election in 1960. The famous mayor of Jersey City, Frank Haig, who was mayor for over 30 years in, uh, in Jersey City, was famous for stuffing Jersey City and Hudson County with Democratic votes that could swing the state. Um, so there's certainly sort of examples of that, uh, but they're relatively limited. 
because it means you have to have a county with a huge number of votes in it, and there's a limited number of those counties. So, in it, right there, that kind of that kind of fraud is relatively relatively limited. Wired elections, where it's where the, where there's greater potential to manipulate voting machines from afar, obviously creates a, a whole new problem and makes tactical fraud more uh, more likely. So there are all those issues of fraud. Then, of course, the other other issue with fraud is simply that maybe there's not fraud, but if you can convince people that there has been significant electoral fraud, that in itself is significant in terms of undermining the legitimacy of the election. Separate issue from the actual fraud, I think, but simply the appearance of fraud is going to be significant. Claims of fraud will be conceivably more significant than any fraud itself. Then there's a fairness issue in terms of who gets to vote, um, whose vote is relatively suppressed, whose vote is relatively encouraged. Uh, and that, of course, is a long-standing tradition um, in U.S. politics and honestly nothing particularly new, I think, in this election cycle. Both parties attempt to make it easier for their people to vote and make it harder for the opposition party to, to vote. That's pretty much just sort of, that's electoral strategy. And frankly, so long as it occurs by rules, it's, you know, you, you can make a decent argument to say certain people should have to go through hoops to vote versus other people and, and whatever. I mean, it, you know, you can, you can make the argument. So if it means that you pass laws, it, it's not really fraud per se. It, it's, it's just whether or not you feel it's fair or unfair, but also that tends to come with a partisan balance. It's interesting that you mention election meddling because I think that kind of got pushed to the wayside. Well, not completely, but a bit considering there's a pandemic and now protests across the country calling for racial equality, police reform, you know, etc. It's hard for me to tell in my position, not being part of the national security apparatus, but I certainly think there have been moves made. But my sense is that there have been actual moves made nationally to secure elections from foreign meddling. Ultimately, I think, except for really extreme corrupt partisans, everyone understands that it's in no one's interest to have foreign meddling in our elections. So my sense is conceivably that there have been some decent moves in terms of securing our elections. I couldn't confirm that in one way or the other, frankly. But yeah, you know, I think you're right. It's incredibly hard to maintain public interest in any one topic for any sustained period of time. That's always been true. Political scientists have talked about that well before the age of the internet and the 24-hour news cycle. But obviously, I think the sort of hypermedia environment that we're now in exacerbates limited public attention. I also think that it provides a greater incentive for media to attempt to construct dramatic stories around elections in order to capture attention. And I think those dramatic stories are often constructed and clearly have a connection to reality, but also are often constructions of reality to make them more interesting and can impact election cycles because then those become self-confirming prophecies in terms of if you craft a dramatic story around an election in terms of people being arch enemies or corruption or, or what have you, foreign meddling, then the lesson of the popular appeal of those 
will then attract politicians to begin to make those same arguments so they can have a self-fulfilling sense to them. And obviously this 2020 election is going to join the list of various others we talked about when it comes to voting during a crisis. How do you think it will be remembered, if you can even predict? What do you think will stick out most to political scientists in the future looking back at this year? The most interesting things that have happened in terms of switches in electoral behavior are, I mean, I think there are several of them. The first is gender. You know, it's only in the last 40 years that gender has actually played a decisive role in in elections, and increasingly so. I mean, you've seen variations across time. I think it was the 2004 election where George W. Bush actually got, I'm pretty sure that was one of the anomalous elections where women actually voted by majorities for the Republican candidate, whereas I think starting... I think starting in 92, you saw this open gender split where men and women started voting by majorities for different candidates, which hadn't been true previously. And that's a gap that widened dramatically in 2016. So one question, I think, is the increasing significance of the, of the gender gap and what will happen with the gender gap. I wouldn't, frankly, expect that to change very much, but we'll see. Certainly, that gender gap has a lot to do with Biden's commitment to choosing a a woman as the vice presidential candidate. The second would be suburban voters. Um, Those have ended up being the real swing in the country. So they'll be significant in terms of how the counties surrounding major, major urban centers, how they vote. I think nationally, they've been trending typically more to be Democrats, but they're certainly the purplest counties that we have. So what'll happen to them will be pretty significant. Uh, again, I don't see any major shifts. They they t- they were trending more Democratic than they had previously. That was reinforced in 2018. And so my guess is it'll be reinforced again in 2020. The other significant things, the degree of partisanship and sort of hyper-partisanship. I think one of the frankly scarier trends that you've seen in maybe the last two decades in U.S. electoral behavior is not just that um, people tend to report in polls that they support their party more and they trust the other party less, that you've seen this increase, not just in voters, but in members of Congress in terms of the likelihood that they interact with, with people from the other party, the likelihood of negotiating with people from the other party, the extent to which they express their ideologies and the extremism of their ideologies, but also in lifestyle choices of typical voters. You know, Democrats are also people who tend to like to live in higher density areas, who tend to like going to cultural institutions, who have different food choices. I think the the really concerning element there is that when partisanship when hyperpartisanship is also tied to lifestyle choices, then I think that reinforces the idea that the other party is an existential threat. And it increases the ability of defining people of the other party as an other that you simply don't understand. To me, that seems like a very, that, that seems pretty concerning. I think a reflection of that, so I think one important thing is the degree to which we maintain hyperpartisanship and the degree to which that hyperpartisanship essentially sort of has already predetermined the electoral outcomes. Because, I, I mean, you see a really stable set of states that vote 
that, that cast their electoral votes for Republicans and cast their votes for Democrats, and then you have a small handful of swing states where the election is always very close that determine the outcome. So, you know, I don't see that changing dramatically. I mean, we're still talking about the same basic swing, swing states that tend to be a few in the Southwest and a few in the Midwest, stretching, you know, basically the old Rust Belt. And the issue there is effectively how do the remaining disaffected blue-collar white voters respond in the Rust Belt? And similarly, I think sort of how, how to higher income, effectively how to higher income white people vote in Southwestern, in a few Southwestern states like Arizona. So given hyperpartisanship, I don't, I don't see the, the balance of the states changing dramatically, and I haven't seen anyone say that. I'd say the final issue is the extent to which people vote on the basis of social and ideological commitment and not on economic conditions. And this has also been a real phenomenon, that throughout most of U.S. history, when we see major electoral realignments, and we can see that there's some rough correspondence in many of those realignments between an economic crisis and a shift in party support. I mean, that's some evidence backed up by it, polling and other pieces of evidence. It's some bit of evidence that people vote on the basis of economic conditions and on their sense of which party will be better for their economic livelihood. Um, the extent to which people claim that they are no longer voting on the basis of economic conditions means that economic conditions aren't going to swing an election one way or the other, and they're no longer going to be the underlying rationale for electoral realignments to the extent that they ever were. I think that's especially significant now, given that certainly one of the biggest things that's happened that should impact the 2020 election is the economic crisis that's accompanied the pandemic. I think it's an open question of the extent to which that'll shift electoral behavior, given that hyperpartisanship is in part a lifestyle choice that's not based anymore on economic conditions. So that partisanship has become more stable, which I think means that the 2020 election, the outcome might not be that different from 2016, you know, where you're really deciding on the basis of a slim margin. And obviously, of course, uh, the margin of the electoral college vote, not the margin of the actual popular vote. I like how you point out that this election is not only a health crisis, but also an economic one. And that's something you compared earlier when it comes to elections during war versus elections during recessions or depressions. And this 2021 has various factors. Certainly, I, I think there's more consistent evidence to say that economic conditions have been more important for structuring party support and changing party support than disease epidemics. This is, I mean, so significantly different than other disease epidemics that are sort of famous in the United States. Even in my limited knowledge of the Spanish flu, I kind of think it was more geographically concentrated than, than as it turns out, than COVID is turning out to be. And I'm also not sure that even if we think about the Spanish flu, that occurred in a context where there was no Centers for Disease Control. Um, there was no Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, the, you know, the, I mean, the responsibility of the federal government or the sense of the responsibility of the federal government for dealing with something like that was 
most likely, I haven't looked into this, but my guess is that the sense of responsibility for the national government was much smaller than we would understand the, the responsibility of the national government to be today. So I think this might be relatively unique in expectations about what specifically the national government should do. Uh, rightly so, incidentally, because the national government, of course, now has a much larger sort of um, medical response infrastructure. So I, I, it, it's, it's hard for me to compare it, especially as a sort of political event, where one of the key political dynamics is the extent to which voters will hold the Trump administration responsible for the response and the outcome of the COVID crisis, or the extent to which voters will assume it's sort of something we couldn't control and um, not really the responsibility of anyone. Thank you so much for joining me and talking to me about this topic today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for, uh, thanks for reaching out. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth. You can listen and subscribe to the podcast on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Charlotte Reese, and we'll have another episode out soon.